first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the mom? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Hey there, Duke fans. Welcome to episode 223 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. This is not an emergency episode, but it feels like it sort of should be because there is stuff going on in the world of college athletics that we need to talk about. Um, I am Jason Evans, and once again, I am joined by my partner in crime, Samuel Klein. Sam, how's it going? Uh, I am am okay. The Power Five commissioners are having worse days than I am today. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is absolutely true because we have just gotten word in the past couple hours, first the Big Ten and then the Pac-12 have announced they will not be playing any sports in the fall. Um, I think the Pac-12, in fact, said no sports till January 1st. But in any event, football is off. You know, all the other Olympic sports that they were talking about starting up, all this stuff is put on the back burner. These schools have decided that it is just not safe enough to play sports during this, you know, pandemic, the way things are going right now. Um, It is a surprise. It is a reversal. I mean, literally, we were on here a week ago, Sam, talking about, you know, the Big Ten had just announced what their schedule was going to be um, for football. Um, And the sort of the surprising thing is there's this there's this split happening. Um, We're hearing from the SEC, from the ACC. I don't know if we've heard officially from the Big 12, but it sounds like the Big 12 is joining with the ACC and the SEC and saying, no, wait, we're going to try and still make it work. So just, Sam, give me your quick immediate reaction to half or 40% of the Big Five saying, no way, we're not going to try. I think from my previous commentary from the last couple months here, I'd say that the Big 10 and the Pac-12 are probably doing what is most prudent because I haven't yet seen from the ACC and the SEC and the Big 12 what their contingencies are for people, for members of their programs getting the virus, specifically the, the staffs, because generally the people on staff are older than the student athletes who are playing in the games. I, I don't think that I'm overly concerned with, with the virus, you know, hospitalizing lots and lots of football players, but given the rates of infection and the death rates that we've seen so far and all of that, you could assume that throughout the entire college football playing population, there might be a student athlete who dies from coronavirus. And and among all the staffs, if you if you put all the staffs together, you'll probably see multiple staff members uh, You know, if everybody plays football this year and if they aren't taking the right precautions. So I'm nervous about what that's going to look like for the ACC and the SEC and, and anyone else that is playing sports in the fall without really rigorous protocols in place. Because I think on the flip side, what we haven't seen yet is them having really robust protocols for keeping their student athletes and their staffs isolated from everybody else. We've talked a ton about Major League Baseball versus the NBA here and how the NBA doesn't seem to have an issue because they quarantined everybody. Major League Baseball hasn't done that, which is why they've had outbreaks on multiple teams just a few weeks into the season. So I'm still nervous about those conferences deciding that they that they want to play. What's even more interesting, I think, through all of this is the fine line that the conferences are having to to juggle between the amateurism model and the revenue that they so desperately want to keep their athletic departments operating this year, which comes primarily from football games, be it TV or tickets, concessions, et cetera. That's where most of the money comes from. And and also trying to say that the student athletes are merely students and they are not different from other students on campus. 
all these schools are limiting capacity this year. It's, you know, depending on depending on what the school's priority is, they're saying, okay, we'll have the the freshmen come to campus or we'll have the seniors come to campus. But there, no one's having, or almost no schools are having all students come to campus going to class like normal, which is sort of what you would need to justify saying, well, all the athletes are on campus and they are all going to class and all going to their workouts and to their games. So there's a there's a tricky communication that's going on from the from the university leadership, not at, just at Duke, we're, you know, we're talking all the schools here that they are trying to, to thread that needle on. Yeah. And, and I want to, I want to address something that you alluded to a second ago that I think is a major part of all this, which is cost. And there, there are sort of two sides of this from a financial standpoint. The first one is the lost money from not having a football season, Penn state and Wisconsin have both publicly stated that if there's no football season at all, that that, that, results in a $100 million loss for them. I mean, think about those numbers, $100 million. That is a serious chunk of the budget for athletics and for the entire university. I mean, this is- And remember, and and don't, you know, remember when we talked about this last time, or I don't know, it was a couple episodes ago, we were talking about the ACC's financial disclosures. So let's get back in that, let's get back in that framing. You said Penn State and Wisconsin- say that they're going to lose $100 million if they don't have football season. We said that Duke and UNC and NC State's athletic budgets are probably somewhere on the order of 100 to $120 million. Maybe the Big Ten schools are, are larger. And and even if, the, even if they're double that, even if they're $200 million to run those athletic departments in a year, you've just said that they've lost half their revenue. And that's their, that's their projection right now. We don't know how that would even actually play out that that might be that might be overstating it a little bit but even if it's 60 80 million dollars you're still taking out a huge chunk of these athletic department budgets and Penn State and Wisconsin would probably be in to my mind I haven't looked at at their specific numbers but they would be in that small group of schools that might be making a small profit on their athletic departments or or somewhere right around there lots of schools are going to be in much worse condition than two of the largest state schools that play power five football in the most profitable conference that, which is the big 10. Exactly. And, and the other cost side of this that I wanted to mention, it is not insignificant that if these schools want to play, there is a cost for playing in the cost of the testing, the cost of the PPE, the cost of all these things that are associated with trying to handle the virus. And specifically the cost of the testing. Last week, the NCAA revised their testing guidelines, and and they said that every school must test every athlete at least once a week and no more than 72 hours before competition. And what they said was, if you can't get your test back in 72 hours, the athlete can't compete. So essentially what they're saying is, you've got to test them as close as possible to when they play a game so that we know that when they play that game, they are safe. Um, and there is a cost, a not insignificant cost to, to these tests. It's estimated, I, I did a little research on this. Most of the estimates are that it costs about $55 to take a test. And if you're talking about, you know, more than a hundred people associated with a football team, and if you're talking about one or two tests per week, it does start to be an actual cost that matters to these organizations. Um, and, and look, it may be way more than $55 per test. If you're talking about a high quality test that you get results back quickly, I'll tell you that the NBA, the NBA, which is doing more testing than anybody, they're going, you know, inside that bubble, everybody's getting tested like every other day, if not more than that. Um, the NBA is charging the media organizations. You know, if you have reporters who are inside the bubble, the NBA tests them as well. And it's charging them $140 per test. And the NBA has said, we're not making money off those tests. That is our cost. Our cost we're passing on to the media. So the NBA says it's $140 per test. And it's estimated that the NBA, as a result of that, is spending around $150,000 a day to test players and staff who are in the bubble. I, I want us all just to think about that for a minute. That's for the NBA to handle you know, way less than the number of players on a football team for 20 teams. When you talk about college football and you're talking about these conferences and you're talking about, you know, with the power five, we're talking about 60 plus teams. 
you're getting into big, big numbers for what it would cost just to test the players and the coaches and make sure everyone is safe. And I think and don't and, yeah. and and don't just think about football here, which would be once a week. If we're having fall sports, that's soccer, that's field hockey. Soccer and field hockey are playing games two, sometimes three times a week. And yep. you got to figure that the most like the, the, the scariest part of part of their schedule as far as contracting the virus would be any time they play an opposing team because they're having either to travel or they're having a traveling party come to their campus and they're standing very close to people they haven't been around. So if you're the Duke soccer team, Duke men's soccer or Duke women's soccer, they have to test their players at least twice a week just to be ready for each subsequent game day, if not wanting to test them more often than that to ensure continued compliance. Yeah, it, it, it's the, the logistics of it, the cost of it are all really hard to figure out. And you got to balance that against the, the health risk and then balance all of that against the fact that these schools really need this football money to make things work. It's crazy. There is no, it, we're at the point where there are no easy answers for any of this stuff. But we wanted to talk about this with an expert, with someone who really knows the ins and outs of respiratory viruses and, you know, what uh, what all the problems are that, that these schools are encountering. So we went to Dr. Randall Fisher, who um, is a member of the Duke family, so to speak, because he is a huge Duke fan um, and he's on the Duke basketball bulletin boards all the time. Um, you know him as RSV man. Just a short time ago, Sam and I got a chance to talk to Dr. Fisher uh, about about sports and this virus and how they deal with it. Here's the interview we had with him. I think you'll find it very, very interesting. So the DBR podcast is happy to have with us now, Dr. Randall Fisher. Folks, you may not know that name, but if you are someone who frequents the Duke Basketball Report bulletin boards, you know him by his name on the boards. He is RSV man. And um, Randall is, in addition to being a huge Duke fan who knows a good deal about Duke sports. He's, he's also someone who is more than a little bit of an expert in the area of respiratory viruses and all this crazy stuff that we're going through with right now. Randall, thanks a lot for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so, so tell me really quick, just give me some background about your area of expertise and what you know about all this stuff. Okay, well, um, uh, I'm a doctor, obviously, and I'm a pediatrician. And then after pediatric training, I did general peds for a few years, and then I went into infectious diseases subspecialty training at Vanderbilt. And um, when I got there, there was a group of people there that were studying respiratory viruses and um, vaccines principally. And actually, it turns out one of the guys there is one of the world's experts in coronavirus. Um, Looking back, maybe I should have chosen to work with him, but I actually chose to work with a guy who ran a lab that studied uh, respiratory syncytial virus, and that's where my username, RSV Man, comes from. Um, so I studied there, um, worked in a lab, did research on RSV. They were doing a lot of research on flu at the time as well, and uh, the live attenuated flu vaccines and that sort of thing. And then uh, when I left Vanderbilt, I took a job at Duke which is, you know, sort of the beginning of my huge Duke fandom. And while I was at Duke, I continued to do research on RSV. Um, and so then I got, uh, you know, continued studying flu and RSV specifically. And I went on the speaker circuit for many years uh, all over the country to talk about RSV and influenza. I mean, coronavirus at that time was just sort of a common cold virus that nobody really cared much about. And so, um, again, like I said, there was a guy at Vanderbilt, his name is Mark Dennison, who studies coronaviruses. He's been studying for 45 years or so. And I, I saw, I talked to him, I looked at what he was doing. It was good work, but I wasn't interested in coronaviruses because they were kind of boring. Hey, can I ask a really quick follow-up? Have you spoken to him in the past few months? I have not. I have tried strenuously to avoid bothering him. <laughs> I, I, yes. I, I have a feeling that work. he is being bombarded from all over the world. Sure, sure. Hey, let, let's let's switch this. So you you've I think you established there that you know a little bit about this uh this area of health. Um let's talk a little bit about sports and viruses, sports and disease. Is there much history of 
disease spreading at sporting events? Is this something that, because it's obviously a huge concern to the, to the various leagues and colleges and the such right now. Um, is this something that, that is a big problem? Well, it's, to be honest, it's not been studied that much. I mean, I think the, as infectious disease doctors, we're all familiar with mostly wrestlers. Uh, and that has to do with, you know, the time on the mat. And uh, there was a time, you know, back in the early 2000s to mid 2000s when, you know, MRSA, which is a methicillin resistant staph, became a huge problem in, in wrestlers. And then they've often had problems with herpes simplex virus as well. And there's actually a name for the disease they get. It's called a herp, herpes gladiatorum. And you, can, you probably know that gladiators are wrestlers. So that's been a, a long known problem. But aside from that, there hasn't really been much. I mean, there was a paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine specifically looking at spreading of infection by a football game. It turns out, as luck would have it, that it was actually a UNC football game. And uh, they were playing, I think, Florida State. And the UNC players, several of them had become sickened. And the presumption was it was by a pregame meal. Uh, no word as to whether it was norovirus was spiked in their meal by a Duke fan. But in any case, they ended up having an outbreak associated with this football game. And 11 players uh, on the opposite team became infected with the norovirus. And uh, not a single one of them had any contact with the North Carolina players outside the actual game itself. So they didn't share any food. They didn't share quarters. Um, they didn't meet together or hang out together at all. And so it was proven that the virus was actually spread from the UNC players to the Florida State players during the course of the football game. And that was and, published and, in the New England Journal. And and, and you, you mentioned to me, because you and I talked about this very briefly um, prior to, to you coming on, one of the reasons there isn't a lot of study on this is that generally, if you're sick, you don't play the sport. Yeah, exactly. You know, particularly with something like influenza, which we know um, is spread more easily the sicker you are. The amount of virus that's shed correlates with the degree of illness. So when you're really, really sick, you you can barely get out of the bed to walk to the bathroom, let alone play a football game. That's one of the bugaboos of this of this novel coronavirus is that apparently there are a lot of people walking around spreading it to other people, even though they feel totally fine. Randall, I know that we are still kind of in the early stages of understanding the this novel coronavirus, but yes. knowing what we know, have you seen any organizations or municipalities that you think have enacted a particularly logical set of restrictions to to limit the spread, given that it is so hard to to trace it? <laughs> wow, <laughs> that is a great question. I mean, to be honest, I, I haven't spent a lot of time like comparing and contrasting the approaches that the various places have been taking. I mean, I think it, it's going to sound like a broken record, but the, the most common sense approaches, I think, work the best. And that is that, I mean, maybe we think about it the opposite way. What's the most efficient way to spread the virus? Then it would be obvious that the most efficient way to spread it would be to get as many people as possible into as small a space as possible that's as poorly ventilated as possible and let them hang out for a long, long time. That sounds like a, that sounds like a sporting event to me. <laughs> I mean, you know, in some cases it, it is, you know, I mean, football obviously is outdoors most of the time, which is a big plus, but when it's indoors, it's in huge, you know, capacious um, spaces. It's not in some little tiny place, but anything that is the opposite of those conditions I just said would be the best ways to prevent the spread. So uh, if you were advising Duke, you know, let's say the athletic department, Coach K, whoever it may be, calls you up and says, Dr. Fisher, tell me what we should do. I want your advice about how we should handle, you know, sports in this crazy time. What would your advice to them be? And you're allowed to say, my advice is don't do it. <laughs> yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, we can see that the NHL and the NBA have been pretty successful at carrying out games. Um, but to do that, they had to take pretty draconian measures, you know. I mean, I think this idea of the so-called bubble, where you basically have a self-contained community and you, you know, 
essentially do everything you can to keep anybody who's not in the community from coming into the community is clearly the best way because people who don't have it can't spread it to other people. I don't see how that's feasible, you know, for uh, for college sports, in particular uh, football, but even in basketball, I don't know how you you would do that unless you wanted to say, we're going to limit the season to, you know, a, a large version of March Madness. And we're going to have, you know, I don't know, two locations or something and, and bring all the best teams together and, and stick them in a bubble and play the games. I mean, that's clearly the safest way to do it. Part of the problem that we have with with anything that is not restricted to a bubble like that is how do you figure out who's infected so that you can keep them out of the game? And the problem is that the tests are not as rapid as we'd like them to be, and they're not as reliable as we'd like them to be. Randall, what about the aspect? So when we've been hearing for the last few weeks about colleges trying to not just bring athletes back to campus, but bringing the rest of the student body back to campus, what how does it change the calculus, do you think, for big universities like Duke when they're trying to also have maybe not full capacity on campus because they're, I think they're limiting the number of students who are able to come and then also there are students who are opting out. So let's say the campus is only 40 or 50% full of students. How, do, how does it change the question for athletics to have all those other students also on campus? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, the more people you have, uh, assembled on the campus, the higher the risk is going to be to the players. I mean, you could, you could conceivably. I'm just, and I'm just making stuff up on the spot. I hadn't thought about it till right now. So if I say something really stupid, you just have to forgive me. But you could maybe conceivably put the players. Let's talk about basketball instead because there's fewer of them. But say have the players all um, stay together and take classes on the computer and not go from place to place and classroom to classroom. And then if you did that, the fact that there's other students on campus wouldn't really make that much of a difference. I mean, one of the beauties of remote learning is that I could be on a computer and taking a math class and someone else could be on a computer in a similar facility and taking an English class at the same time. Whereas in the traditional in-person class situation, everybody goes to the class you want to go learn math, you go to the math class. And then if you want to learn English, you got to go to the English class, which involves people moving around. And, and it involves putting people together with different groups of people. And it makes it harder if somebody becomes positive, then contact tracing becomes much more difficult. And I think if you're going to have athletes and try to keep them on the court, it would be so much easier if they were in a cohort that would include only the other athletes so that if one of them were to get sick, you could isolate them from the others and you could just test the other athletes. Whereas if you're having them intermingling with the students, the more they do that, the higher the risk is going to be that they're going to pick up the infection. Randall, this has been fascinating, and I want to thank you so much for loaning us your expertise. I just want to close with one quick thing. I want to know, as a as a doctor who specializes in respiratory diseases, how how has the past you know, six months or so been for you? Have things been different? What What are you seeing? Give us Give us a slice of what it's like to be someone who, you know, sort of is suddenly the forefront's the wrong word, but someone who's on the front lines to some extent on figuring out this really, really complicated thing that is novel and new and terrifying. Yeah, I mean it's a it's it's a it's been an interesting experience, and I would say that I've been stuck into the forefront. Um, being a pediatrician, I've been fortunate enough that I don't have hundreds of patients, you know, or tens of patients clamoring into the hospital sick, and a bunch of them requiring ICU space and ventilators, because most of the kids have been staying have been staying relatively well. Uh, the problem has been more um, with the infection control aspects. And I made the mistake of becoming the occupational health in charge of being in charge of occupational health for my company, which is a large multi-specialty group with well over 120 providers several years ago. And until recently, it's been a pretty benign job. You know, that 
a kid would come into the um, emergency room coughing for two weeks and the doctors down there would forget to put a mask on to go see him and then they would test him and they'd turn positive for pertussis, you know, which is the whooping cough. And then they'd call me and say, hey, this kid had pertussis and then I'd have to prescribe antibiotics for all the doctors who were too dumb to put a mask on to go see a kid who's been coughing for two weeks. I have a feeling when this is all over, by the way, you know, parenthetically, that I won't be getting those calls as much. But anyway, when this thing came around, all of a sudden it's, you know, it started up as a trickle and there were just a few kids a day and maybe we'd have leave three or four positive tests a day. And then they would send me a report saying this child presented to the urgent care center or the ED and they tested positive. And these are the doctors whose names appear on the chart. And then it was my job to send out an email to all of them and say, you know, you, this patient, you, one of your patients had was infected with SARS-CoV-2, and if you weren't wearing proper PPE, you may have been exposed, and please, you know, respond to this and let me know, and blah, blah, blah. And it just, as time went on, it became more and more burdensome because the numbers went from three a day to eight a day to 15 a day to 20 a day, and they got into the 25, 26 a day situation. And in the meantime, we also made some changes so that we were now wearing masks for all patient encounters and also goggles over the eyes. And so it got to the point where I felt like we were just asking the doctors, were they following our guidelines and wearing proper PPE? And it just seemed like a waste. So I, I just sent out a memo and I just switched the whole equation backwards and said, look, everybody you see has coronavirus. Just assume they do. Wear the proper PPE at all times. Contact me if something happens, you forget to wear your goggles or someone pulls your mask off your face or whatever. And we'll look up your patient and see whether they infected, you know, had possibly infected you or not. So I basically just switched it the opposite way and it's taken a lot of work off my plate. But the other thing that's happened is that like if a, uh, if a provider that works for our company develops the sniffles, I can't have them coming to work. And so they they have to contact me and tell me what their um, their symptoms are, and then I have to order a test on them and have to tell them they can't come to work, and then the test results come to me, and then I tell them they whether they're positive or negative and when they can or can't come back to work. So I'm sort of managing the providers' problems at the same time, and new problems are coming up. Like you know, some of them have little kids, and you know, one of them will call me and tell me, "Hey, my 18-month-old son has sniffles and a low-grade fever. Now, what do I do?" And so you know, it's just it's it's been interesting and challenging, and honestly, a little bit exhausting. And recently, we've also had several kids admitted to our hospital with that multi-system inflammatory syndrome that you've heard about that looks kind of like Kawasaki disease and I've been involved in caring for those children. And it's a pretty scary disease. So, you know, it's very stressful, but I feel like compared with the adult docs that have been dealing with so many really sick patients that I feel like a whiner if I complain about it. <laughs> well, Dr. Randall Fisher, thank you for providing us with so much perspective and understanding and expertise we really appreciate it. You know what? We'll we'll try and have you on sometime in the future when we can talk about something fun like Duke basketball or football or one of those topics. But uh, but this I, has been very educational and 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 also thanks again for all the advice that you've given to folks on the Duke basketball report bulletin boards. Folks, if you don't read anything on the DBR boards, but just go read some of what RSV Man has written on the off-topic board about coronavirus. It, it's just, it's important advice. So again, Dr. Fisher, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I would absolutely love to talk basketball someday. <laughs> someday soon, we hope. Thanks again, right, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Jason, that was a really interesting conversation. And, and of course, thanks again to Dr. Fisher for joining us here on the show. I think the part that stands out to me the most is his reiterating a lot of what we've said here about how if you're going to do this, we were saying this earlier in the show, if you're going to do, going to have games, if you're going to have big crowds of people, even if that just means the teams and all of their attendant staff getting together, testing, 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 that is, that is what it's going to take and isolation for these games to be considered safe. I think the the challenge that's come up in the last couple of days that we haven't really, we haven't, I, I don't think we've come to a consensus on 
because there are folks who really want football to be played in the fall is the question about where are student athletes safest? Are they safest playing in the games and being under rigorous testing protocols, you know, on campus, or are they safer in, in some other paradigm? And I, I think that's what's, that's what's being batted back and forth. If you see the statement from University of Nebraska leadership seem to be upset with the Big Ten for canceling their sports this fall, and they made some pretty pointed comments about how, well, if the student athletes are playing sports for University of Nebraska, then we can keep them safe, and we think that they are safer here than they are elsewhere. That is a huge point of conversation right now that I, I don't know if you have uh, a strong opinion about, but but I, I would love to discuss further. Yeah, no, no, I think it's a fascinating thing, and and let's discuss it further, but first, let's take a quick commercial break. When we come back from the break, we're going to have more on that, this question of where um, where the players are the safest. I also want to talk a little bit after the break about the movement among players to form a union or an association, the collective players trying to come together and take a stand against the schools. All that after this quick commercial. All right, we're back. And Sam, you you teed us up to an interesting topic. And so I'm just going to take it and run with it for just half a second. This, this notion of where are the players the safest? And it really is an interesting thing to think about. And I think the the idea that, that Nebraska has espoused and some other people have, have picked up on it is that when the players are on campus and when they're part of these teams, the schools are able to better control the environment that the players are in if they were than if they you know go back to their regular homes and, and they're just out there in the community. I don't think that's wrong. And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I'm not going to argue that the players are safer being out there in the wild um, because I, I think they probably aren't. But the, the question to me is, are they playing, a, are they doing some of the things that Dr. Fisher said we shouldn't do, which is, are they getting in close quarters with people for sustained periods of time where they don't know if the other people that they're in close quarters with have the disease because that's what you need to avoid. And if they are, if the, if these teams are just keeping them on campus in a, um, in an atmosphere that is, that is not out there in society quite as much. Yes, that's safer. That's good. But if the team, if the schools are keeping them on campus and having them practicing and having them interact a lot with each other, that could be potentially dangerous. Does that, does that make sense the way I said that? I'm not sure. I, completely... I, I Yes. So when I, I think about this from the lens of a football team, because when I was on campus at Duke, I, I've talked about how I worked for the football yes. team. And so I was in the, it's called the, the Yo football building is, is where the, the locker room is. It's where the players work out. The practice fields are, are kind of off on the other side of Wallace Wade Stadium. If you been on the campus and you've seen that layout but the football building the yo football building is where the football players are spending most of their time they have a players lounge in there they have treatment in there so they go in there before and after practice to get taped up and ice baths and all that kind of stuff there are a, probably a couple hundred people who are in the yo football building every day in you know in confined spaces be they in you know players in the locker room the equipment staff which is which lives right next to the locker room, all the coaches that are, that are in their offices that are upstairs. There's a, there's a big training room that has a ton of trainers in it. All of those people are, are working very closely together all day. I think it would be disingenuous to think that all of those people could be tightly bubbled up because the staff all go home at the end of the day. The players go back to their dorm rooms. However, if the players were released from playing football and were just told, go to class, go do the required things, but otherwise stay in your dorm room, that seems like it would be safer to me than the players all being in the in the practice facilities. The point I think that that's interesting here is, uh, and and now I'm trying to remember one of the one of the coaches articulated this, or it might have actually been the, the Trevor Lawrence statement, uh, articulated this in an interesting way, which is that there is a level of of regularity that the programs impose on the players when they're in season that would be that would sort of heighten everybody's awareness for looking out for the virus. And I am, I'm sympathetic to that. I understand how 
having the structure of the of the team and it doesn't it's not just football that's that's any teams that are in season because they're working really hard and the, and the players are really there to play the games so they don't do stuff that will jeopardize their ability to play in the games you know if you go to if, if you go to the the places where duke students are socializing when the athletes are in season you won't see them out in those places they they are not doing that because they don't want to ruin their opportunities to play in these games they don't get many of them so yep. I, I understand where someone on that side of the argument is coming from because, yes, being on the football team imposes a certain amount of personal responsibility and, and daily rigor that you wouldn't get even from a normal student at the, or from a regular student at the school who does not have those kinds of responsibilities. When I was on campus at Duke, if I, if I got sick for a week, okay, I missed a week of classes and parties and stuff, but, but I didn't miss my one shot to play in the game whatever that may be. So I, I get that, but I also feel like the university leadership is not being, you know, of places that, that think this way, is not being totally genuine when they say that that's the only safe place for the student athletes to be. I think that, that schools are enough of a contained environment that they can provide that kind of structure and, and, and level of rigor that the students who are on campus will be able to stay safe. And that it's not just incumbent on the athletic departments to provide that kind of structure because that's not really what they're good for or what not really what they're good at. Well, and, and you mentioned, and I do want to get into this very briefly before we wrap things up. You mentioned the Trevor Lawrence statement. Trevor Lawrence, um, the Clemson quarterback, who's one of the leading contenders for the Heisman Trophy this coming season, if there is a season. <laughs> and Justin Fields, the quarterback for the Ohio State University, who who is also one of the leading contenders for the Heisman Trophy. Both of them um, tweeted this week uh, with the hashtag, we want to play. And what, to be clear about what that hashtag is, it's not them saying, let's forget about safety. We want to go out there and get on the field and play. What they're saying is, we want to play, but we need it to be safe. We need it to be a situation where, where we can play and not catch this disease. Um, and Basically, what they have said is they want someone, and by someone, I don't mean an individual, perhaps an entity, to really be in charge, to make the decisions about how to keep the player's safety, make sure that the player's scholarships are intact, um, you know, in case the season is never played. They want someone to represent the players. And this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue across college sports this notion of we need a players association, so to speak. I don't think we're talking about a union. Um, the, the the Supreme Court has, uh, the Supreme Court and the uh, the National Labor Relations Board have weighed in on the notion of college athletes as uh, as a union and and have not weighed in in a positive fashion on that. So I don't think we're talking about a union. What we're talking about though is a player, a body that would represent the players and bring their interests to the table. And with these two prominent players joining, we heard about, we talked a lot about the Pac-12 players saying some very similar kind of things. This is becoming a bigger and bigger thing across the world of sports. Sam, do you think we're at an inflection point? Um, have we reached the moment where college athletes are going to find a way to get their voices heard and their issues addressed by the universities? Or, or, or is all this going to fade once the virus is gone and we sort of start to get back to sports the way we remember them from six months ago? I think it depends on how university leadership around the country reacts to this whole thing and, and how much they want to hold the line on, on the status quo for, for student athletes. If we cancel the season, if, if, if all these programs cancel the seasons, you're going to hear a lot about about not necessarily players losing their scholarships, but, but players' lives getting disrupted because maybe schools may not be able to honor scholarships if there's no, if there's no athletics revenue. You're going to hear about people in athletic departments getting laid off and schools not being able to, to continue playing a lot of their sports. You'll hear about a lot of schools cutting sports the way that Stanford did. That's just the tip of the spear. If, if schools hold the line here, say we can't have sports, we're just going to deal with the financial fallout because they're like we said earlier, they're losing a ton of money by not playing. However, if they say we're going, to, if the university presidents come back and say we need to make a best short-term financial decision to keep our people employed, to, to keep the sports in place that we really want, then you're going to have them start parsing. All right, well, 
is there a difference between the football team playing and the soccer team playing? Because, because if you step back and look at them, the football team brings in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue for, for these top schools and the soccer teams do not. So if we start treating the football team differently than we treat the soccer team, then you're going to hear a lot more about, all right, well, now are we being hypocritical because we're treating certain players, football, and then to a lesser extent, men's basketball, we're treating them differently than we're treating the other athletes. Right now, a lot of schools can say, look, we treat them all the same. We give them the same apparel. We have them eat in the same dining halls. Like the athletes get, you know, whatever treatment they get is at least consistent across the different teams. And I've talked to friends who, who played sports at multiple schools who, who say that, right? Just because you're on one of the revenue sports doesn't mean that you get completely different facilities. You might get some. But overall, the set of benefits is the same no matter what sport you play. That does not so, reflect the economic so, reality of those sports. Yeah, let, let me just really quickly – you can finish your point, but let me just really quickly say the college basketball players at Kentucky are living in a different dorm than the other athletes. Sure. <laughs> That's just <So>, reality. <laughs> but the, but the, the ath- all the athletes – I don't know this specifically at University of Kentucky, but all the athletes of the University of Kentucky get a – you know, baseline kind of the same deal on scholarships and academic support and and all the other things that, that come with being a, a college I think athlete. That's, that's largely true. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. We can go so with that. If Continue. we are if we are if we are saying now that okay, we're still gonna play football because the athletic department needs to remain solvent, but we're not going to play soccer because it costs too much for us to put it on, that's where you're gonna see this big tear coming. And that's where the the, the sort of movement for for the football players and the basketball players to start getting paid more, that's going to start resonating with more people if, if, if the college presidents have sort of tipped their hand on that. But if they're able to hold the line and they're able to say, look, we can stomach the layoffs because we don't want, we're going to stomach the layoffs and the cuts because we don't want to make those other calls, then, then we continue with the status quo perhaps for a little longer and it plays out more in the court of public. My take on all of this is we're at an inflection point right now where the players have more power than they have had in the past. And the, you know, the notion of them forming some kind of an association or some kind of representative body that would be able to say what the players want and talk to the NCAA with some kind of authority, we're at a moment where that could very well happen. But the interesting thing that is happening is at that same moment, we are shutting down sports. And so the ability for the NCAA and for the Power Five conferences to sort of listen to and react to whatever body it is that forms is very limited right now. Um, And as a result, I sort of think I sort of think that once we get to a point where we're ready to resume sports and I don't you know, I don't want to speculate on when that is or how that happens, you know, vaccines and other kind of things like that, that, that we all hope will will allow us to to go back to where the life where our lives were in January and February please but when that happens i'm not sure that the players are still going to have the power they have at this moment right now because i think there's going to be so much excitement about resuming college sports and pro sports and and all that other kind of stuff that that i think the appetite for huge fundamental change and for negotiating with and working with the players may not be there and on the player standpoint, their appetite for taking a hard, firm line on some of these issues may have melted away as well. I mean, look, if if you didn't get to play, if you're Trevor Lawrence and you were hoping to showcase yourself for, for your you know trip to the NFL and you didn't get to play and they say to you, look, we're not in, we want to get things moving again. We're not interested in having this long conversation about potentially paying you guys and all these other kind of things. We just want to get the games going again. Do you want to play or not? I wonder if Trevor Lawrence and, and more to the point, guys who are not automatic first round draft picks, guys who are, maybe I can play my way into being a third round draft pick. If those guys are just going to be like, I want to play. I'm, I'm not interested in delaying the process and, and going through, you know, headaches. I just want to get back on the field and play. And so, like I say, we're at a unique moment right now. And unfortunately, I'm not sure we're going to, I think we're probably not going to be at that same moment when the time comes to resume the games. And so I, I feel like the players may lose, may lose their moment, so to speak. And, and for most power five players, even in the big revenue sports, even if you just take power five football and men's basketball, 
most of those players are not going to be professional in in their in their sport. So Correct. they know that, like, right as you say, Trevor Lawrence could sit out the season and still be a top three NFL picker or something in that in that realm, right? He's he's one of the one of the most famous and best college football players. So he could sit out and still be good. A lot of his teammates are also going to go to the NFL and they're and they need to play this year to improve their draft stock and all that kind of stuff. But a lot more the majority of his classmates on the team are not going to play NFL football and and many of them acknowledge that even before they graduate. They they know that that's not happening. They want to play. So well, and, the, and, the fight and for the, the the fight for those extra those extra dollars that the, those sponsorships and those things, those are great. But the players also want to play the games, and that's to them is the most important thing. So they they're going to come to perhaps different conclusions about that. It's it it is it does show um, some amazing, you know, an amazing thought process by Trevor Lawrence to say I want to play this season because he was as you, as we said he was one of the guys out in front of figure out how to make this work for us and we'll do it. The the message I got from his statement was not figure this out or like let's play at any cost. It was Let's play. And by the way, the schools and the conferences need to keep us safe. Yeah. And, and more of the point, you know, we're, we're talking about Trevor Lawrence and Clemson. Um, look, Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, a couple other programs, a heck of a lot of those guys are, are going to the NFL. The, the reality is what, what needs to work is something that will work for Duke that probably has no more than four or five guys on the roster who are likely to be NFL players at some point in the future and UVA and Georgia Tech and on and on and on. It needs to work for these programs that are not huge football factories, but are still a huge part of the NCAA. And uh, and again, I, I feel like if they can figure out a way to make it work right now, great. Um, and by work, I mean, you know, get their, get their issues heard and addressed. But I, I, I sort of feel like the fact that these conferences are shutting down probably shuts down that conversation. And, and I, I, I think that, I think it's probably not going to happen for them, um, which is unfortunate because I really want it to, because I think they deserve it. But one last thing on this, I don't think that the conferences have been as creative yet as they could be about how to make sports happen because the schools are all going partially online anyway. I don't think that it is unreasonable to think that the ACC could take all of the men's basketball teams and quarantine them somewhere and have them take online classes and and play the games. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I don't know where they would do it. I don't know that that you know it's not going to bring in the same kind of money that the NBA is is getting right now. So it may not actually make sense for them to do it financially, but I I haven't heard discussion of all that get floated yet and I'm curious to see if we're going to hear about any of that stuff in the coming months because football is probably getting pushed out. You know, we've seen a couple conferences decide that they're either canceling the season or pushing it to the spring. The Big Ten being the most prominent, men's basketball is still up in the air, and and I hope that we hear some news soon about conferences deciding to at least explore what would basketball season look like if we isolated all the players because that that would still be fun for us and it would still work for the athletic departments, but. Do they want to admit to the differences between the sports and do they want to go to, to those measures and, and spend that kind of money to have the sports continue in some kind of bubble that would be you know, common among one particular conference? Well, well, and the other thing is, if for some reason, let's say the ACC put together some kind of bubble, the SEC put together a bubble, it, um, you know, the Big Ten, for example, it, it would not be impossible or even all that difficult for you to say, okay, we're in a bubble and things are controlled in here and we know we're doing well here, which is what the NBA is doing. And the NBA has done phenomenally well at it so far. For you to say, okay, we're going to move some of these teams to another bubble, to another place where they're doing it well. I mean, yes, there's some risk in transit, so to speak, but probably not a huge risk. So you might even be able to have some cross-pollinization of, the, of these various bubbles that Congresses, that conferences sorry, could, could put together. And Look, it's it's way more feasible in basketball than it is in football, just by the size of the team. I mean, the number of players that you have playing basketball for Duke is probably the number, you know, basically the number of starters that you have only on offense for the Duke football team. Um, uh, you know, the football team's going to be 
you know, when you include, you know, staff and trainers and, and the such well over a hundred basketball team, 20, you know, 20, 25 at the most. Um, so the economies of scale of putting the bubble together, I think are much more doable. And look, we, we've seen it from, we've seen it from the NBA versus major league baseball. It's much more doable in basketball. So I hope they can pull it off. It'd be an interesting thing to look at. And I agree with you, Sam, it's something that the conferences should at least begin to explore and think about, but that's going to wrap it up for us here uh, on episode 223 of the Duke basketball report podcast. Sam, thanks a lot for joining me on our next podcast. We expect to have Donald back from his little break. It'll be a lot of fun to have him back with us. We were thrilled to have Dr. Randall Fisher with us to, to give us some perspective on all this craziness. Um, and he was a wonderful, wonderful guest. Folks, if you have any questions for us, send them to us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe, put reviews, all that other kind of stuff. Do those things that you do for your favorite podcast for us, because we are one of your favorite podcasts, at least we hope so. For Sam Klein, I am Jason Evans. Thanks again for coming and joining us on the DBR podcast. Everyone out there, please stay safe. And we hope, hope, hope that we have college sports again sometime soon, because we want to talk about something other than viruses. I am Jason Evans. Adios. And Duke Band, take us home. I want to check on something. Are you okay with me identifying you by the boards and, and that all kind of stuff? I, some people like to remain anonymous. I just didn't know. Oh, gosh. I don't know. Who's going to listen to this thing anyway? <laughs> <laughs> somewhere between somewhere between uh, 1,500 and 4,000 people, um, wow. most, of whose, most of whose identities we don't know. Yeah, wow. Nice. I mean, I don't know, whatever you can, I mean, I'm board certified in, in peds and in, in pediatric infectious diseases. Right. You know? right. Sorry. Sorry. When I said boards, I meant the bull, I meant the Duke bulletin board. I oh, meant, oh, 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 oh. Sorry. What yeah, I meant was, do you me, want man. me to identify oh, we're you definitely, as an man? We definitely oh. have to identify you as an, as an expert. We're not just letting, uh, you know, random DVR right. commentators come on and, and tell us what they think people should be right. doing during the pandemic. I think that's a good policy.